You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. Stanza 5 of the hymn, O Love, How Deep, How Broad, How High, sung by the St. Paul's Parish Choir in Washington, D.C., speaking there of Jesus' betrayal. Well, Jesus speaks of it as well in a famous parable from Matthew 21, the parable of the wicked tenants. He tells the opponents right to their faces what they will do and why they will do it to him. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll be looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary. Matthew 21 has the parable of the wicked tenants. Pastor Sean Denzer will be our guest. Then we'll talk about the need for masculine men with Dr. Owen Strand. He's author of several books, including his latest, The War on Men, Why Society Hates Them and Why We Need Them. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome back. Great to be back, Todd. How do all the propers of this coming Sunday, how do they hold together and maybe some of them don't hold together as well? Well, I mean, I really think they do, actually. Our approach in this series uh, through the three-year lectionary has been not just to look at the gospel reading alone, which I think is the temptation, and at least from my conversation, probably the way that most people are using the three-year lectionary is essentially just to say the gospel's all we're interested in, and we're just going to enjoy Matthew's gospel this year. But we're looking also at how the rest of the scriptures around it hold together in a full day of readings where the gospel is certainly where it starts, you might say, or where it's leading. Today, the gospel alludes to one of our passages, our Old Testament reading, and it just straight up quotes our psalm for the day. And I think as a result, this day really holds together easily because the gospel itself gave the assemblers of the lectionary a direction to go and they followed it very easily. The rest of the propers, I think, do fit in pretty obviously. We want to look at them. But one of the parts that's really great is you'll see a very different character in the prayers and the hymns. So before we get too far, let's just say the gospel reading today is in Matthew 21. It's the parable of the wicked tenants. To summarize it, the master goes away and leaves the vineyard that he built uh, in the hands of his tenants when he comes back for the harvest. They reject all of his servants. In fact, they kill them. At the very end of it, the master says, I'll send them my son. They'll respect him. But they say, no, he's the heir. Let's kill him and get the inheritance for ourselves. And the master is furious and he'll destroy those wicked tenants. And Jesus adds to that, that the the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone referring to himself. So very much in all of our readings, a theme of judgment that we will see, condemnation 
for those wicked people who would reject Christ Jesus or who would presume on his grace in such a way that they believe really it's their own doing and their own possession by their own right. But in contrast to that, we're going to hear really strongly, especially in our sung propers like the intro and in our hymn of the day, an attention to the other side of the coin of that. If we see how the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jewish people reject Jesus in the gospel, and how, in fact, this is nothing new if we look at the Old Testament, we're going to see the delight of God's people who receive this son who is sent from the Father, the delight of those who love him, who consider him the cornerstone rather than one to be rejected, and therefore lift up their voice in faith. And I think the epistle for today actually really does kind of give that picture as well. Go into a little more detail, overviewing, especially that interplay between the gospel reading, as you point out, the original recipients of this parable are getting no gospel out of this whatsoever. No, I'm afraid not. So we'll jump back to if Isaiah 5 in the Old Testament reading, which Jesus himself is quite, I think, easily to hear referencing when he lays up the whole story of the building and the digging of the wine press, building this vineyard. The Lord announces his job for Isaiah in Isaiah 5 with the song where he builds his wine press and bestows it upon his beloved and then looks to see how they reject him and don't produce what he asks in his vineyard. So that'll be obvious. There's no good news for the Jewish leaders because they're the ones who are condemned. In fact, we'll hear at the end of the gospel, they realize that Jesus is talking about them. There's no misunderstandings going on. Everybody understands what's being said and what it means, which points to kind of the hardness of heart. This is no longer a matter of people who might be confused. This is not Nicodemus coming with some interest, but still timid. These are people who are seeking to put Jesus to death, as it will say plainly. And it's only their cowardice or their fear of the people that will prevent them. What's promised to those who would receive the son, though? Imagine if there had been tenants who were glad to respect the son as the master suggested. And how would the promise of that son come about? In fact, through the son's shameful treatment and rejection. We are going to see that in other places, and I think it ought to be in the back of our minds too, since we know who the son is. We aren't people who reject him, at least not overtly. It's our desire to fight against our sinful nature and to stick with this son. So we also want to see the great promise. And the irony that's kind of right behind it is that precisely through being slain, he is our Savior. Likewise, we're going to look at Psalm 118, and we're going to see this judgment uh, that Jesus quotes against them. But I think we'll also see a clear shift in its direction, because uh, if you know the whole of Psalm 118, it's absolutely a prayer of faith, not a prayer of rejection. And the epistle is going to make that opposite point. Paul is going to talk about rejecting everything except for Jesus Christ, the Son. He'll give up everything and consider it loss in order to have the surpassing worth of that cornerstone. So he's going to cast off the same kind of treasures that the Jewish leaders in the gospel cling to against the Son. And Paul is going to gladly receive him. Maybe one more note I'd like to say before we jump into the text, and that is this is going to be a day, perhaps, of 
some subtle distinctions. And I recognize that for the hearer, the person who's looking forward to tell me what this means, or let's get into what the Bible says very clearly, it can be frustrating to have many subtle distinctions. And the reason we're going to maybe face this is, again, we're dealing with stories of hatred and violence, which we like to imagine we're over, or we, we just don't have hatred and violence around us anymore, or these are things we all know are bad, and therefore they're never going to happen. That's a naive perspective, as the scriptures obviously show us, as well as history, as well as the news at this point. Likewise, it's going to be about prophecy and judgment, and, and those are uncomfortable topics maybe, but also because we're at the nexus of historical events and how we ought to make a general application of them. Again, that saying from Paul is very important. These things were written down for our learning on whom the end of the ages has come. And sometimes you learn from a negative example, and that might not be so pleasant to consider. But that's what we absolutely have here if we're going to look at Jesus uh, pronouncing essentially judgment on these Jewish leaders. And then I think you may hear some subtle distinctions or some difficult sayings because the history that we're dealing with here is the rejection of Christ by the Jewish people. And we know how applications of that truth in the Bible, that history, as well as the ramifications of that, have often been misapplied. They've been taken too far to mean things that ought not to be understood by us. Likewise, very few have patience to read the scriptures as a whole and understand what's said in all the places. And look, I think it's helpful to remember that generalizations are just that. They are general applications. Of course, there are going to be exceptions in generalizations. You lose the value of a generalization if you have to be obsessed with the details and all of the actuallys that you could throw in there. It's important to recognize that the scriptures assume that you can understand these nuances just by the way it converses and speaks to us too. The Bible itself, that is, God's own word as we understand it to be. The Bible does not hold up to the kind of soundbite criticism or scrutiny that journalists who are often trying to attack and tear down in our day would give to it. There are plenty of sayings that stand next to things that almost would seem to contradict it or that balance it out. Therefore, as we often say on this show, Scripture interprets Scripture, and the Christian is to constantly be growing in the fullness of the Scriptures so that they can bring these applications there and not get bent in one direction, especially if a generalization has been made. I think then it's also helpful as you're listening, if your pastor's sermon, or frankly, if my commentary today doesn't hold up to the soundbite scrutiny that you might find on a short Twitter feed or something, that you should give your pastor the patience that you would afford the scriptures. Because if something he says maybe seems to not have all of the exceptions enumerated, consider what Jesus himself says in the way he speaks. He doesn't always stop and enumerate all of the contingencies either. I think he makes it very clear he's not speaking legalese. He's speaking as one with authority. Thankfully, just as our Lord is patient with his Christians, so also your pastor will be plenty patient if you have questions afterwards. Let's get into the intro. It You mentioned it before, Psalm 118. Yep, we'll start with the first verse. It's also the last verse. It's the perfect antiphon. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. 
for his mercy endures forever. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Those internal verses are 22 through 24. We zoom in on the pertinent phrase, the one that Jesus himself quotes and says, surely you've read this in the Bible, you leaders of Israel, and what follows it. My first reaction, knowing Psalm 118 very well, is to say, boy, you've kind of just zoomed in on the happy verses, haven't you? Many pastors have kind of done their own liturgical beginning to the service and said, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's even come into one of our services now in prayer and preaching in the Lutheran service book hymnal. I guess that is a very generic sounding phrase that could serve that kind of replacement for hello. Instead of saying good morning, we could say this is the day the Lord has made, but really not mean much more than that. In context, there's a whole lot going on in Psalm 118. We hear Palm Sunday, Hosanna. We hear bind the sacrifice to the cords of the altar. We hear the prayer of a faithful one who's been delivered from his enemies like bees around him saying, I shall not die, but I shall live and declare the works of the Lord. And we know that this is a psalm that is absolutely prophetic, speaking about Christ and what he's undergone, not only from today's passage, but also from those other allusions to Holy Week in particular. So maybe we've omitted all of the darker parts of this psalm, but I think I want to argue actually the other way, that I think in zooming in here, we're not trying to ignore those other things because they're uncomfortable. Here, we really are trying to nail down these couple verses And notice, there's going to be a lot of warnings today. We're going to look at them from a third-person angle because Jesus is maybe not talking directly to us, accusing us of uh, being wicked tenants, although, of course, a Christian's always open to that possibility. Uh, But we're going to watch him accuse others who have acted heinously and learn from that to be careful lest we fall into the same temptation, that we should seek God's mercy and pray that he would preserve us from such false belief and all of the shame and vice that follows from it. But the intro takes a different tack, really. It looks at that other side and says, Maybe the builders have rejected this stone, but he is truly and has become now the cornerstone. And what does a Christian say to that? We say, this is exactly the way the Lord wanted it to be, both that he was rejected and despised, but also that he would be held up as the one in whom we all are saved. He and his works are marvelous in our eyes. And then this is the day that the Lord has made, the day of his son. We might say that day is Good Friday and Easter. We might say it's his entire ministry. We might say it's the time of his church when the Messiah has come, when we're no longer looking forward to salvation, but we are looking partially backward at what he has accomplished and forward to its fulfillment at the last day. No wonder this is the great gradual for Easter Sunday. This is the day the Lord has made. Easter means eternally new day now in Christ Jesus. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary. We'll get to the collect for this coming Sunday next. Church music directors can find a new community at Prelude to Postlude. 
the CPH Music blog. Learn helpful tips for managing music ministry and involving members, and meet the composers of some of your favorite new pieces. Plus, find suggestions of music to use for special services, and preview some of our newest works with free samples you can use at your church. Visit us at preludetopostlude.org. Job saw the city as a wasteland, as if devoid of God, witnessing injustice to the poor by the corrupt, lawlessness of criminals, trafficking of children, blatant immorality, thinking God could not see wicked deeds done in the dark of night. Yet God never abandoned Job, nor his city, groaning for mercy. God is working through the living Redeemer, hands etched with salvation, pointing to the resurrection to come. Join us at lcms.org slash citymission to seek peace and shine the light in the city. Old theology, new technology, you're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, the 19th Sunday after Pentecost, with Pastor Sean Denzer. Pastor Denzer, what is the collect for this coming Sunday? Gracious God, you gave your Son into the hands of sinful men who killed him. Forgive us when we reject your unfailing love, and grant us the fullness of your salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. This collect is very much in the style of the late 20th century. You can tell it's been written. I think it's particularly that phrase, forgive us when we, and then something particular. I should say that is a risky way of writing a prayer that's going to be prayed by every Christian. I mean, it's not wrong at all that we as Christians should repent, nor that we should be constantly ready and in fact doing an examination of ourselves to learn our sins so that we're not pretending that we by our own powers are righteous or that we have in fact no need of repentance. There's plenty of things our Lord says that makes that very clear to us and that we should be warned against all temptations constantly. For instance, in the service, when we've taken something that for most of the church's history and certainly our catechism's explanation has been an individual and private matter, that is confession and absolution. When we've taken that into the general, we haven't insisted that everybody enumerate their particular sins. It'd be hard to write a universal confession that would accomplish that, of course. And that's the great insight that Lutherans have from Psalm 19, is that you can't even discern your errors or number them. You couldn't possibly remember or speak truthfully about them all, so deep is our sin. 
we know that there is great value in considering our particular sins, but particulars call for a particular occasion. And that's the risk, right? So have I done what this prayer is suggesting to me? That's what the prayer is inviting me to consider. The more specific we are, the more you run the risk of having it kind of bounce off. The same is true in preaching, of course. There's a great value in being specific about sins so that people don't wriggle away. If you just say, well, you should uh, not covet. And then they say, well, I don't know what that really means anyway. I mean, I guess I've wanted other things, but I haven't coveted. That's a big word I'd never use. So I probably haven't done it. Whereas if you want to be so narrow as to this particular sin, the sin of adultery or the sin of car thievery or whatever it may be, you run the risk, of course, that it's very specific. It's very easy to understand. And perhaps it strikes your conscience. But if you've never stolen a car, I suppose I'm righteous in that case. The similar problem, I think, when we name particular sins, general confession is general for a reason. Before God, we plead guilty of all sins, even those we're not aware of, like we do in the Lord's Prayer, and I think like we do in our general confession in the service. Dr. Gibbs, who wrote a commentary on Matthew's gospel, I think he has a really sound point on this gospel reading. He notes that it's addressed particularly to the religious leaders of Israel, this parable of the wicked tenants, and not just to Israel in general. And as a result, it's also not so easily applied directly to us. Now, I suspect he's a little bit at pains to avoid the conclusion that the Jews are being rebuked here as a monolithic ethnic group, as was in sometimes, and as has been a real concern in the last hundred years, to say that the Jews monolithically killed Jesus or killed the Savior. I also detect actually a rebuff in his argument against dispensationalism, the idea that while there was an age of the Jews that was part of God's plan for a certain time, now he has a new plan totally distinct from the Old Testament, and that's the age of the church or the age of Christians, etc. Those are difficulties we would like to avoid. But even so, as generalizations, what gives rise to those misunderstandings are things from the Bible that do hold true. We just came through Romans previously this summer, where Paul never stops to clarify not all Israelites as he's talking. Likewise, in Acts 15, which I've made a lot of reference to, when Peter has his great moment, he says that we Jews shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That's a way that the Bible itself has its own antidotes to its misapplications. I think that's a, a far better way to handle it, actually. Okay, so back to our collect, where it says, forgive us when we reject your unfailing love. Let's think about that a little bit. Do we really reject the Lord's unfailing love in the sense that the religious leaders of Israel do? Knowingly, deliberately, because they despise him? I would have to say no. The Christian doesn't willfully reject Christ Jesus. Not every sin that is committed casts out the Holy Spirit. Yes, we're often of two minds and of two wills. Constantly, our flesh and the Holy Spirit are battling against each other. We've heard about that very clearly in Romans. But no, I mean, a Christian has faith alongside doubt and struggle and the flesh's rebellion. So by no means do they reject Christ in the way that these particular leaders do. Now, at the same time, I think we can also say yes in this sense, in that his love is not always having its way with us. 
have we rejected his unfailing love because our love has failed in other ways, as our private confession general section has it? I think that is a good observation. We as Christians do not minimize sin as if some of it weren't rooted in unbelief and only a few things really are. No, we recognize that it is unbelief and doubt and struggle that's our weakness even that is at the root of our sins for which we're always in the right to say, Lord, have mercy in a general sense. But so what is true? What is true is that Lutherans have a very rich tradition of applying that act of crucifying Jesus, which some have said the Jews have done this. Maybe that's led to some kind of anti-Semitic feeling. Well, Lutherans really have a fine antidote to this. We apply the act of crucifying Christ to ourselves. It's just that we don't do it in all of the ways that is kind of common in our culture, in our world right now. So we don't apply that guilt of killing Jesus to ourselves in the manner of collective ethnic guilt. And we don't do it in the manner of like strategic universalism. I am Spartacus too, or I am him too. I am him too. That's not what's going on here. Nor do we do it by flattening out all sins. You know, well, the Jews did that, or the leaders did that. And, you know, I've done bad things too. And really there's no difference. Therefore, could say we're all the same, this kind of flattening of sin so that it becomes equally mundane and interchangeable. No, this is the way that Lutherans apply this to ourselves. We apply it in the great exchange of the atonement. We recognize, of course, that sin is present in all human beings, is, is coming out of our hearts, just as surely as it's coming out of my neighbor, any neighbor's heart as well. But we make the exchange here. The Lord has actually laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's why our hymns in Lent, for example, say, who struck you and accused you? Well, it's tis I who did that. It's I who encumbered you with sins. It's absolutely drawing the lesson out from Isaiah 53. So in light of the text today, which all have the character of this warning, we're going to watch Israel and see the Lord's words against them. And we're going to know that we're not Israel before the fall of the northern and southern kingdoms. So how are we going to take this? We're going to take this as a warning to us. We're going to watch the example of the Pharisees and the leaders' rejection of Jesus. And we're going to hear his speaking about the cornerstone that they rejected, that God has established, and that anybody who stumbles or falls upon will be destroyed by it rather than building upon that foundation. We're going to hear that as a warning. And I'd suggest that our petitions, when we're faced with warnings, find their best phrasing when we do it like Luther does, right in the middle of the catechism explanation. He doesn't just say, you know, forgive me for the times that I will do this, even if it's not the case, but he says this, protect us from this heavenly father. I think even if we have the phrasing that we do, that's really what we're asking here. We see that the father was willing to do this and the son was willing to undergo this, to be handed over into the hands of sinful men to be crucified. We know that we have not rejected him in that way, and yet we see this warning and we pray, Lord, preserve me from unbelief and all of the chain of events that would lead me ultimately to destruction. And we recognize in every sin the trap laid, and the temptation laid, that absolutely would, if it were not for Christ's protection, shipwreck faith. That's why a Christian out of that faith prays, I believe, Lord, help Preserve me from all other unbelief. The Old Testament reading, as you have mentioned, Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7.
Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Behold, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This uh, might be familiar to some of our listeners because it's echoed in the reproaches that are sung on Good Friday. This kind of rhetorical question, what more could I have done for you, all my people? Which is a very poignant moment to consider in light of the crucifixion. Maybe a dangerous thing to do, right? A risky thing to take what is for us the greatest moment of gospel and also recognize that our lives, in every place they don't conform to it, really do seem smack of ungratitude, ingratitude, and ungratefulness. For that, as our collect prays, we ask the Lord's forgiveness. So the Lord is a husband to his bride, which is Israel. And building on that metaphor then, or reality, we should say too, he sings a song, right? And the song is, look what I've done, I've built this. And yet it did not yield as it was supposed to. Maybe that's important to notice is what is the accusation of the Lord against his vineyard and against the people who are holding it, his beloved? Well, it's that they haven't produced the fruits. That's the works of faith. So he looks and he finds neither faith nor works in Israel. Remember, faith is close to faithfulness. And this analogy of marital love is always in the Old Testament closely connected to the Lord and Israel and whether they trust in him, believe in him, seek every good from him. It's exactly what Paul mentions in Ephesians when he says that marriage is an image of Christ and his church. At least it's intended to be. Thus, when it falls apart, it also is an image of what falls apart between the Lord and his people when they have neither faith nor works for him. That was the case in Israel, and thus that's the message Isaiah has, to call them to repentance, but if repentance should not come, to predict destruction. So we hear that. In fact, it's quite poignant and an easy parable to plot out on the life of Israel. To tear down the protections on a vineyard would just mean to open it up to all of the natural predators that are constantly there. You see, this is a precious and fragile treasure that is protected at all times by its master, or if the master should release his hand or let his guard down, that it would be destroyed in a moment. This is the way he sets Israel in the midst of all its enemies, all the Gentile nations. And that's by his design because he will be their God and they will be his people and he will be guarding them at all times. 
but all he has to do is release his hand if they refuse him and they will be destroyed. There's no hope for them to protect themselves. So that's what we see in this passage from the Old Testament, and we'll build on this imagery of the vineyard all throughout our readings. The psalm is 80, the verses 7 through 19. Yeah, we skip a little bit at the beginning, but we hone in on this vine imagery that's brought out in the psalm. Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You cast out the heathen and planted it. You prepared room before it, did cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her boughs unto the sea, and her branches unto the river. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges, so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? The boar out of the wood doth waste it, the wild beast of the field doth devour it. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts, and look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It's burned with fire, it's cut down, they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself, so will we not turn back from you. Quicken us, and we will call upon your name. Turn us again, O Lord of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Like our Old Testament reading, this lays out Egypt's position geographically in a very beautiful way. So you hear that they came out of Egypt, and they get planted once they come into the land. The Lord prepared the room, right? Cleared away all those Gentile nations. They took deep root and filled the land. You even have them. It's a metaphor about becoming like a great tree, this branch, this vine, that it would grow so high that it would actually give shade to the mountains. Can you imagine that? But this is no metaphor that she goes out to the sea, that's out west to the Mediterranean, and that she goes out to the river, that's east to the Jordan. But then all of the nations can come and pluck her and attack her if she doesn't have the Lord as a hedge to guard her. Now, when we read this at first, especially after our collect and after the Lord's very pointed call to repentance and personal sin and to recognize this to Israel, we might say that this psalm really does lack personal repentance. It's oriented instead toward the enemies and kind of a why us. Maybe we might even be tempted to say this is a purely victim mentality that's being expressed here. I think what will help is to take that last phrase where it says, restore us again, turn us again, and draw it from the rest of the prophets, which their message is always summed up as repent, return to the Lord your God. There's especially a verse in Lamentations 5.21 that I think is helpful. It says, turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. You see, the prayer is that God would restore us, would return us so that we can repent, which is fascinating and fantastic. It fits perfect with uh, all of our theology that is expressed clearly in Paul and the New Testament that by no means are we rescuing ourselves. No one gets to say, well, I made the first decision and God followed through on my choice, rather to recognize that he's the one who spurs us, who brings us back, and that even repentance has its root in faith created by him. So I'd urge you to see it that way. And also the vine connection was just too rich to pass up, I think, as a comment on the previous reading.
I would like to point out that the Son of Man is introduced at the end, and surely this is speaking about Christ Jesus. It's fascinating that the word branch and son are kind of the same here, interchanged in some translations. Is this branch, this son, supposed to be Israel, kind of personified? Or does it go the other way? Is it the vine, we've, that's a personification of the whole people of Israel, that now is being kind of boiled down, reduced to one, as we've said many times already looking at Matthew's gospel, to see Jesus as the true Israelite, the true son of Israel, as certainly he is. I take it when it says here that let your hand be on the man of my right hand, this is not the same thing as to say, let your face shine upon us. That would be a hand of blessing. He's the man of the right hand, so he's the man that brings the blessing. But why would the Lord's hand be placed on him? I would take this as a hand that presses hard. That is, this is part of the great exchange, that the Lord presses down on him in our place, that he lays on him the iniquity of us all in order to restore us. Uh, the alternative would not be a problem either, that the Son is upheld as his right-hand man, his Savior, and his Deliverer, in the same way of the manner of the judges and the kings. But I think it's especially fruitful in this day to recognize the means by which he is our Savior, which is strangely but beautifully to be our suffering servant as well. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, the 19th Sunday after Pentecost, headed toward the gospel reading in Matthew 21 and the parable of the wicked tenants. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we're rolling right along in our adventures in Acts with Paul visits James, Paul arrested in the temple, Paul asks to speak, Paul's story begun, and Paul's story interrupted. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com. The Gospels report to Jesus saying some rather shocking things. For instance, in Luke 14, he tells his disciples, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How can Jesus say such things? What about some of the other more difficult teachings of Scripture? Do you have questions about them? Well, we answer many of these in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. Pick up your copy today at cph.org slash witness. Lutheran Witness Interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Your daily Lutheran Bible class. You're listening to Issues Etc.
our school is committed to authentic Lutheranism, the entire Book of Concord, and indeed to authentic Lutheranism as it has continued to be confessed and practiced through the centuries right up into our own time. Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Chairman of the Department of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We're committed then to biblical, confessional Christianity and Lutheranism and applying it to the world of today in as effective a way as we can. You can find out more about studying for the pastoral ministry at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, at ctsfw.edu, ctsfw.edu, or call 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. This is what Dr. Beverly Yonke of Doxology had to say about the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today. There's no quick and easy GPS available to provide care for others, yet Saunders has provided an array of vital concepts and tools that will be valuable for those who keep vigil with those who suffer for years to come. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health, is available from Concordia Publishing House. Just give them a call, 1-800-325-3040, or browse before you buy at our website, issuesetc.org. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary. Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, is our guest. Sean, the Epistle, Philippians 3, beginning at the middle of verse 4. Yeah, we've skipped a little bit, but that's all right. We'll just jump right into it. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I, Paul, have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith." that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is probably the clearest, in my opinion, the the least sarcastic, maybe, of all of Paul's inverse boasting passages. So he doesn't tell us here that he's speaking like a madman, but instead he lays it all out, lays out all this boasting, and then directly casts it aside, rejects it, says, I give it up. His pedigree means nothing to me. 
So it's a marvelous pedigree. He's a super Israelite. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's of the kingly tribe of Benjamin, like Saul, like his namesake. And he was circumcised on the eighth day. He's no convert. He's a Pharisee, the strictest, most serious caretakers of Torah. He's obviously zealous. He's willing to kill for what he believes. He did it to the church. And uh, he was blameless according to the laws of his people. But even that, he casts aside, maybe except for the killing of the church. None of this is wrong to love the Torah of God, to keep his commandments, to be faithful to his people. This is all good. But he casts even what was great and accomplished aside because salvation in Christ Jesus is by grace, as he'll say. It's by believing in Christ Jesus and his promises. It's not by what we accomplish. I think this is such a prized passage for us as Lutherans. We have many similar passages that talk about not of works, not of the law. It's a faith instead of that. It's by the Lord's grace. It's his righteousness. But it's just a particularly beautiful one that we have a righteousness, a justification that is not out of the law, as Paul writes it, but through faith in Christ. It's a righteousness that is not out of the law, but out of God. It's a righteousness that depends or is based upon, it might even be a building stone metaphor if you want to connect it to our intro, that is built upon faith as opposed to being built upon the achievement of works. So I think it's a particularly clear passage in that regard. And what is all of this mentioned for? What is the rejection of his accomplishments and pedigree? What's the acceptance and love of this righteousness, the explanation of justification by grace undeserved through faith, believing a promise of God that makes us righteous, just like Abraham, that justifies us, uh, that says we stand right before God. It is the reason that he endures so much. And as the theme of Philippians really is, he endures it and counts it all joy as Christ has, that he's undaunted in this, that he suffers not because he's lost status. He bears even real sufferings, even real persecution and pain, because if he has Christ, he really has not lost anything. As he said earlier, to die is gain and to live is Christ already. So he talks about sharing the sufferings of Christ, a beautiful phrase that we'll just pass over for the moment, suffering with him in order to obtain by any means possible, by whatever suffering he must bear, the resurrection that comes to those who belong to Jesus Christ. So we can imitate Paul in all of this. This is not a warning to us at all. This is something laid out for us to say amen to. And I totally agree, Paul, and I'm going to follow after you as well. Faith makes us confident because it gives us a clean conscience, a way that the works of the law can't do, even if you are blameless, like Paul says he is. And hope, that is, looking ahead to the, the resurrection and the glory that Christ has laid up for us, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done out of his great kindness. That hope propels us forward to the resurrection, even now in works for the sake of the neighbor, producing real grapes, not the fake wild ones, but also to endure sufferings undaunted and in joy, because Christ is the treasure. The gradual in the verse, what are those? He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Oh, guard you in all your ways. Certainly, Paul did have some angels who broke open a few prisons for him. They didn't guard him in the sense that he never faced trouble. I think that also helps us to understand why the Lord was not, in fact, breaking the scripture when he refused to jump off the pinnacle of the temple for the devil. But I think especially this last part, bless the Lord, my soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name. It's especially fitting to hear after uh, this epistle. The name of Christ is the beautiful name to us, not our name, not our heritage or our pedigree either, but the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. That's what we treasure above all else. The verse says the same thing, doesn't it? The verse is our key verse that we heard already in the intro. It it will hear in a moment quoted in the gospel from Psalm 118, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and this is the Lord's doing marvelous in our eyes. That word, I suppose we could do a longer study. We won't today. It's a curious saying, the head of the corner or the cornerstone is often how we put it. It's sometimes an unclear. It's not entirely precise what this architectural stone is and what its purpose is. But even so, whatever it is, it, it, the, the meaning comes through just fine. It's the important one. It's the stone of true significance. It's the foundational stone. It's the angle stone uh, that sets the direction of everything. It's the pinnacle stone that holds everything together. All of those applications are what it means to have Christ. That's the astonishment that people would reject it but what is so marvelous for us who love him and see him and receive him and don't reject him. Take us into that gospel reading, Matthew 21, beginning at verse 33. Jesus said, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to Jesus, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So you see Jesus' reference to Isaiah by kind of building out the story with planting the vineyard, digging the winepress, making the tower. This would have been familiar to them as well. And maybe we should say Jesus is being rhetorical, right, when he asks these questions of the Pharisees, the lovers of the Torah. 
do you know these scripture passages? Have you ever read these? Of course they've read them, and that's why they know the answers. But obviously the tenants reject the servants when he comes back. Why so violent? It is a surprise in the story to see them uh, not just say no and shut the gate, but actually to kill these people and to do it continually. Uh, but we know who he's speaking about. This is the prophets of old. The Lord builds this case over a number of uh, chapters in Matthew and the other Gospels that they have always persecuted the prophets. And uh, so does Stephen in his sermon as well in Acts, that this is how it's always been. When the Lord sends prophets, the people of Israel kill them and reject them. They finally done this to Christ as well. John the Baptist uh, is among them as maybe the final servant that is sent. And uh, Jesus was just speaking about him last week as we heard it and in the previous section. So finally, the master sends his son. And this too is a surprise. He even says, surely they will respect him. It shows the character of the master, his intimacy, his personability, and his never-ending love. We might say this is his steadfast love, his loving kindness, his long-suffering. And he sends his son to be entirely personable, and they reject him. It shows the audacity of the tenants, that they don't even fear the master, and they don't even fear, as they normally ought to, that he would take a violent reaction to this. I do think it's a strange and audacious plan. How are they going to get the inheritance? How are they going to become the sons if they get rid of the heir? I think they really have in mind of, after we're done here, we'll go and find the master and kill him too, I guess. And if there's no other sons, then he'll have to just give up and let us have this forever. But that plan is not reasonable at all. And finally, when Jesus asked the conclusion, notice his interlocutors there, the leaders of Israel, aren't clueless. They understand how this works. It's very much like Nathan coming to David, telling him that parable of the neighbor who stole the other man's sheep. And, uh, you know, what should be done? What do you think we should do here, King David? And David launches into a tirade. That man ought to be killed and payback fourfold. And he knows exactly what the punishment ought to be. And Nathan says, well, you're the man. Jesus kind of has that here. Interestingly, in Mark's gospel, it's not that way. In Mark, Jesus actually gives the answer himself. But here he lets them condemn themselves with their own words, which is fascinating. I think we ought to say just for a moment here, this is a passage that makes it clear there is no universalism. The Lord, in fact, is an avenger in all these things, as the scriptures say. His grace does not, as it were, last forever. That's why the call to repent, the call to seek the Lord while he may be found, is urgent. You cannot despise the Lord forever and get away with it. Yes, he's patient. He is slower than some would even imagine he should be for the sake that all would come to repentance, as Peter says. But that doesn't last forever. So then he gets to the end. He quotes this uh, passage from Psalm 118 about the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he expounds on it a little later that the stone, in fact, will break people to pieces if they trip over it, if they land on it. And anyone who falls, when the stone falls on them, it crushes them. And these sayings show that Jesus is a watershed moment, so to speak. When he is 
coming with his message of the gospel, when he is before them, when he comes in the flesh, he does it to be the savior of the world. As John says, he comes not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And yet those who reject him, those who reject his words, have a judge, his words that they heard and threw away. So to those who neither have faith nor its fruits, his coming is not welcome, but seals their own fate. And I think that ties together wonderfully, tragically, but wonderfully, all of these passages about the vineyard. And we see that everyone understands at the end, there's no confusion. This is willful unbelief and cowardice. And we then, who have heard all of this in many different ways throughout the service, must say to ourselves, Lord, have mercy. God grant that this would never be the case with me. Preserve me from this temptation, Lord Jesus, and let me treasure you as the true cornerstone, the one who gives me the inheritance, undeserved as it may be, and the one that I dare never reject but want to cling to always. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, thank you. You're welcome. Dr. Owen Strand joins us on the other side for our two of issues, etc. We'll talk about the need for masculine men. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.